welcome to episode 116 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Kirill Resnick, delegate from District 39 in Montgomery County, Maryland, parliamentarian of the Maryland House of Delegates, and chair of the Health and Human Resources Subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee. Kirill is also the director of contracting for a USAID contractor. Kirill, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Jordan? Excellent. The first question I'd like to ask is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, um, currently, I think the most the most relevant uh, thing at the moment is as chair of the Health and Human Resources Subcommittee on Appropriations, uh, I am tasked with uh, making sure that the state's budget for health care uh, is is sufficient and is able to meet the needs of the people of our state. And given the potential changes that we are facing at the federal level, um, I find that role to be more important than ever. Now, it's very interesting. In Maryland's House of Delegates, there, um, unlike many other states, each delegate is assigned to one and no more than one committee. Um, you're on the Appropriations Committee. And considering your background in international relations, can you explain how the Speaker of the House of Delegates chose to make you chair of the Health and Human Resources Subcommittee. Sure. I, I, it does sound like those two things are not necessarily compatible. But when I first came to the legislature uh, 10 mm -hmm. sessions ago, I'm now in my 10th session, um, the, there were few available spots um, in the committees um, at the time. And uh, instead of shifting around a number of different slots, um, the speaker decided to put me on the Health and Government Operations Committee, uh, which is the Health Policy Committee. The, the committee also deals with uh, procurement issues, which is actually an area that I am professionally familiar with since my role as Director of Contracting Compliance and International Development primarily focuses on federal procurement. Um, so I spent nine years on, I'm sorry, eight years on HGO, and in that time developed um, quite the understanding of, of health policy and was incredibly involved with the implementation of the uh, health benefits exchange and all the different uh, state-level requirements for implementing uh, the Federal uh, Affordable Care Act. And as a result, uh, it's kind of become um, an area of both specialty and interest for me. Uh, healthcare has become that. So um, that seemed like the most appropriate way to transition into uh, the Appropriations Committee. My understanding is when the vacancy came about for that subcommittee chairmanship, uh, everyone in leadership agreed that someone with a background in health policy um, was the most appropriate individual for that role, and that's kind of how it came to be. So you've gained, it sounds like you've gained quite a bit of expertise in the field of health policy through your service in the House of Delegates. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's an old joke about how if you do something for 10,000 hours, you become an expert at it. Well, this is my 10th year, and I can probably imagine that I've been dealing with healthcare policy for at least 1,000 $1, hours a year. So I think I'm getting there. So Maryland, um, in light of the Affordable Care Act, has kind of been not only an early adopter, but almost um, a role model for uh, what is now known as Obamacare. In 2006, there was a great deal of Medicaid expansion for our listeners, Medicaid is health insurance for the low income uh, in the state of Maryland. 
And uh, there's a great deal of Medicaid expansion prior to the Affordable Care Act becoming law in 2010. Of course, a good part of Obamacare expanded um, eligibility requirements uh, for Medicaid at the discretion of states. With the current administration potentially uh, putting uh, Obamacare on the chopping block, um, do you think Maryland will kind of be able to move ahead, continuing to implement Obamacare on a state level in much the same way it did before the Affordable Care Act even passed? Or do you think there's going to be some substantial roadblocks uh, once you uh, once you see the federal law disappear? I, I think the answer to that question is actually both. So just to give a little context, uh, even before uh, Obamacare was a twinkle in anyone's eye, um, the Maryland uh, Health Policy Committees, both in the House and the Senate, started to look at Massachusetts as a model for how we achieve universal health care. And as a result, um, we, received, we, we did a number of studies. Uh, several of our uh, committee chairmen went up to Massachusetts to look at the Massachusetts model, uh, all with the intention of, of moving forward with that kind of model in the state of Maryland. And then Obamacare happened, and as a result, what, everything that we intended to do came through in the federal law. Um, so we paused or, or, or um, decided to, to not move forward with, with that plan uh, as the federal plan was going to accomplish what we had wanted. So um, there was always the intent to try and achieve universal coverage uh, in Maryland. And so now that we are in a new situation, we are in a situation where Obamacare after several years of implementation has actually been quite successful in some ways and has not been successful in others. Um, it's been successful in the fact that we have expanded to over 400,000 Maryland, 433,000 Marylanders um, having obtained coverage in one capacity or another, whether it's through uh, the expanded Medicaid community or whether it's through um, getting subsidized um, insurance plans on qualified health plans through the exchange. Um, we've achieved 94.5% coverage in the state of Maryland. So that means that of the almost 6 million people who live in Maryland, 94.5% of them receive regular health care coverage one way or another. And for um, our listeners, just as a point of comparison, it, with Maryland's coverage, health insurance coverage rate at 94.5%, do you have any points of comparison, for instance, national health insurance coverage rates or average rates in other states? I don't uh, have those numbers handy. Uh, I think we are doing significantly better than most states, and I think a lot of that had to do with the commitment we made to implementing Obamacare. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, the, the efforts that we put in to make sure that the word got out. Um, there are things about it that, that are not as successful. Obviously, if you recall, you know, the software that we initially used failed miserably. Um, and as a result of that, we had to go back to the drawing board spend a lot more money uh, to revamp the system. It works now, but that was always an issue. And of course, the dwindling, dwindling number of options in Maryland on the exchange for the, the, both the insurance companies and the plans offered um, have, have shrunk in the last couple of years as well. So we do have some challenges. The bigger challenge that we are facing is if Obamacare is fully repealed, Going back to the drawing board and implementing the Massachusetts model, I believe now will be more difficult than it was before Obamacare was a reality. Um, one reason is because we will have to find a lot more money. 
um, the Massachusetts model, most people don't know this, but when, when Mitt Romney implemented mm-hmm. um, his version of universal coverage in Massachusetts, there were differences uh, that were actually more generous than what the uh, federal government put in place. So, for example, in Massachusetts, any company with 11 or more employees was required to provide coverage. Under Obamacare, it's 50 or more employees. That creates a significantly different pool of people that do not have to be subsidized because their employers are being co- are covering their insurance. Um, that is a significant number of individuals. Um, the Massachusetts plan also did not include a Medicaid expansion to the extent that Obamacare does. Um, and so as a result, um, the, the costs involved with Maryland going back and implementing a system uh, that is like Obamacare or even like Romneycare um, will require a significant amount of money that we will have to find. So I believe the task would be more difficult if healthcare reform is um, is repealed entirely. Mm. So, although isn't it true that there are a lot of economies of scale that could be gained through universal coverage, which in Maryland wouldn't add too many more individuals to the health insurance rolls since there's such a high rate of coverage already at this point. Um, but aren't there aren't there ways that um, universal health insurance coverage and other sorts of health care reforms, such as negotiating down prescription drug prices, uh, requiring a menu of services, that uh, having uh, Maryland's unique all-payer rate setting system being extended into the ambulatory setting of care, aren't there many different ways to reduce health care costs um, through additional state-driven health care reform initiatives? Absolutely. There are definitely things that we can do. Uh, prescription drug coverage is right now, prescription drug costs are um, a major driver of healthcare costs, uh, not just in the state of Maryland, but everywhere right now. And so putting controls on that um, would significantly reduce the amount of money that we need in the system. Um, the all-payer system that we currently have is primarily a way for us to keep costs down at hospitals and does not necessarily translate into um, into the private physician setting, but at the same time, you are correct, it does um, provide for more cost savings across the entire system. There are definitely things that we can do, and all those things will have to be explored, but at the end of the day, I just think we're going to have to find a lot more money to be able to accomplish what we need to accomplish. So transitioning away from healthcare, um, you mentioned that you have a great deal of professional experience in international relations and development abroad. Can you speak a little bit about your work working for the United States um, Agency for International Development, USAID, and how that work, um, especially in other countries, and, and the fact that you were actually born in another country, informs your work at home? Does it make you more grateful for the wins? Does it make the frustration seem a little bit more uh, easy to bear given what other challenges face, or does it really inspire you to do even better given the freedoms we have that other countries lack? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I think that in terms of, you know, hard comparisons, my work, my, my day job, as, as we like to say in Annapolis to call them, uh, is very, very different from my work in Annapolis. Um, but for the last 22 years I have done, uh, my career has been 
both managing international development projects and and you know winning international development projects and managing the contracting part of it. So um, and dealing with USAID and USAID programs and our counterparts overseas, um, and frankly some of the most um, economically depressed and and developing parts of the world. It, it, like I said. Translating to my work in Annapolis uh, has, is, is not exactly an easy comparison. I would say that the, the knowledge and experience that I've gained in terms of just the procurement process has really helped to inform me about state procurement as well, and I've used that experience to, to help um, us at the state level to be able to do better in terms of, of the way that we procure goods and services. Um, the other real Again, it's not a hard comparison, but it's a soft comparison. But one of the things that it's provided for me, however, is having seen the way the rest of the world lives and getting to understand that we in the United States, regardless of our socioeconomic position, are likely better off than most of the world and seeing how people survive and seeing how people make ends meet and live day to day and raise their families and feed their kids and put a roof over their heads has really informed the way that I have perspective in the Maryland General Assembly. Can you elaborate on that perspective a little bit? Sure. Um, in, in what way? How would you like me to elaborate? So, um, so you're looking at individuals in uh, Ukraine or you're looking at individuals in different parts of the world, sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, they're really struggling to, for instance, get uh, potable drinking water. And then, of course, you have uh, the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission invest in mm -hmm. water infrastructure. Is there some kind of perspective that you gain? How does the perspective you gain by seeing how others are, are functioning abroad or how perhaps uh, multi-party systems are the way or, or whether there's censorship in their, in their media? Is there, is there mm -hmm. any perspectives that you gain abroad that, that – change the way you govern um, in the House of Delegates? Well, the one thing I can say, I think, is that wherever you live in the world, whatever your personal situation is, it's very easy to get used to that situation. Mm -hmm. And so when, when, for example, a number of years ago, and they're doing much better now, but when a number of years ago PEPCO was having numbers of power outages uh, across the county, and you know, daylight, sunlight, power outages. There's no reason for it, and suddenly the extra electricity goes down. Yeah. And to sort of have the perspective of, at least we have Pepco, at least we have an energy grid. Um, you know, I've been to many parts of the world where people are used to not having electricity round the clock, and so it definitely provides for a different perspective. You know, when we complain about Metro breaking down and being half an hour late to work, well, mm -hmm. I've seen people whose whole existence is based on, you know, walking to the market to sell the goods they've grown over the last week or two or walking to the river or to a community well to be able to bring back water to bathe or cook in. Um, it definitely lends a very different perspective in the way that we live and the problems that we have or what we conceive to be of problems. And they are problems. Like I said, it's very easy for individuals to get comfortable in a situation um, and, and feel like that is the norm. Um, you know, we have 
in, in Montgomery County, we have one of the best school systems in the entire country. Um, and yet people complain about X, Y, or Z because they want the best for their kids and they deserve the best for their kids. But at the same time, I have been in countries around the world where just being able to go to school for half a day, a couple days a week, is considered a luxury and considered and, and something that people are grateful for. So it definitely lends to a different perspective, and and nothing would make me happier than letting people in the United States, giving them the opportunity to be able to see that rest of the world that I've had the, the privilege of seeing in order to gain some perspective about how we live and who we are. So it sounds like there's uh, a lot that we're doing well, and a lot of your work is spent trying to make us even better moving forward, but you always have in the back of your mind an acknowledgement that uh, we've made a lot of progress compared to other countries. I want to pivot off that point, and uh, I'm under the impression there's a division of international investment and trade with Maryland's Department of Business and Economic Development that both solicits foreign direct investment in the state of Maryland and tries to find markets for Maryland companies to export their goods abroad to help uh, build jobs at home. Have you found uh, any opportunities to uh, bring your international experience to the table to uh, within the realm of economic development in Maryland? A little bit. Um, I know that with the previous administration, with Governor O'Malley's administration, the head of that department, uh, Bob Walker, and I had a close relationship, and we had a number of discussions, and I went to a variety of events that helped push that agenda forward to make sure that Maryland became a destination for foreign companies to be able to, to settle in in the United States. Um, and also the reverse, you know, having, as you've mentioned, um, finding markets for, for our goods overseas as well. And I spent a number of hours with the department during that time. Um, since the administration has changed over, that has become significantly less. Uh, and, and, I know that you understand the, the political dynamics that exist in Maryland right now with the, with the legislature in the hands of one party and the executive in the hands of the other and, and the tension that that has created. So as a result, I have really not had as much opportunity. But I do know that we have a number of companies here in Maryland, especially biotech companies, um, that have made Maryland their home and um, have contributed significantly to our local economy, and that's something that we're very grateful for. We want to make sure to do everything that we can uh, to continue that relationship as best that we can with any country around the world that we can. I know that we've established relationships um, with a number of countries and had, again, under the previous administration, um, hired foreign directors to sit in those countries' capitals to help solicit that business. We did it with Israel, we did it with India, China, uh, Russia, um, and some others as well. And to the extent that, that that has continued, I can't say. So to change the topic a little bit to a little bit of a lighter note, um, you are also proficient with uh, martial arts and once owned a martial arts studio. Since we're talking about the public interest, do you care to uh, take a moment to speak to our listeners about uh, how instilling discipline and providing instruction to kids um, really is one way that you have worked to advance the public interest. I know you're still continuing to volunteer in that capacity to this day. 
Well, I haven't actually trained martial arts in a really long time, and um, <laughs> that's something that I that I regret uh, a great deal. But unfortunately, having two jobs, being a delegate yeah. in the legislature and having a full time uh, job as as a, in international development, as well sure. as you know raising a family, having two daughters, and everything else has taken a lot of time away from being able to to continue my training. And so it's been a very long time, but it was a period in my life that that I loved, and it was a period of my life that gave me great satisfaction. Um, I have grown to appreciate what it takes to actually teach kids. And whether you are a martial arts instructor or whether you are an English teacher or a science teacher or a ballet instructor or whatever it may be, having the the patience and dedication that it takes to shape young minds, discipline young minds, um, you know, grow young minds is is something that I have a, an enormous appreciation for uh, as a result of that training. Um, you never you never really appreciate it as a student yourself, and that's something that that I think most kids could probably attest to, but um, once you get put in the position of having to to train them, to teach them, to educate them, um, to give them a perspective on life that is very different from what may be at home or, or somewhere else, um, is is an amazing experience and opportunity. And so that was that was a great time for me. It also was a time when I had to run my own business and, you know, pay my own bills, and uh, thankfully I didn't have a payroll. There was nobody that I was paying to, to teach with me. But, um, you know, the rent and the lights and the uniforms and all that stuff, um, and while trying to, you know, to bring extra revenue in so that you actually made money on the effort, um, running a business, running a small business at the time um, was was also an amazing experience because, my parents were running a small business at the time. My brother, my older brother, was running a small business at the time. We were all involved in that kind of effort, and um, it really gave me a perspective to be able to understand that small business owners go through a great deal as well. So it, it was it was a wonderful time in my life. Uh, I don't know if I will ever be able to get back to it, um, but uh, but it definitely was a great time, and it also helped me in the very first session that I ever participated in in Annapolis. Really? Um, to to pass the the uh, mixed martial arts bill that um, that has now generated you know a great deal of revenue and and uh, you know tax base for the state of Maryland since so so as we approach the end of this podcast I have one final question for you sure. why don't you reflect on all the various perspectives that you bring to the table and all the different experiences that you've that you've had from building a career in international development to being an operator of a small business to being uh, an elected official. I'd like you to take a moment and, and speak to our listeners about why it is that it's so important to you to do public service and advance the public interest for others uh, in the many ways that you have done so. Um, well, you know, here's the thing. When, when you – one of the things that I – understand one of the things that I've come to to acknowledge is that I have a very very privileged life I you know when we came when we immigrated to the United States we immigrated from the Soviet Union um, and we had very little to our name but I watched my parents build a business raise a family send us to school make sure that we never slacked 
Um, and as a result, I've had opportunities that very few people have been able to have. Um, and as you mentioned, being a member of the Maryland State House of Delegates, being in international development, having been able to travel to over 40 countries around the world, uh, having owned my own small business, um, et cetera, et cetera. I am incredibly lucky to have been able to have that kind of a diverse experience and that kind of a rich life. Um, so to the extent that I both use those experiences and use those, that knowledge I've gained to be able to add to the, uh, to the life of the folk, of the people in Maryland um, and to be able to legislate uh, as well as I can. At the same time, um, I also believe that all of that experience and all of those opportunities in a way almost force me to be able to, and in a good way, um, to have to give back. Because had there not been people like me for me along the way, who have pushed me, who have made me do things that, that I would not have otherwise been able to do, who had encouraged me, um, I may not have been able to have all of these experiences and all of this, this kind of life. Um, so I feel that it is a responsibility for me uh, to have to serve for the public good, to um, make sure to give back to mm-hmm. everyone else um, in a way that, that I have been able to receive. It's kind of a, a pay-it-forward scenario where, where you have been able to gain a great deal as a result of the efforts of others, and therefore you should and must give back uh, in the same way, if not more. That has been Delegate Kirill Resnick of District 39 in Montgomery County, Maryland, parliamentarian, chair of the HHR Subcommittee of Appropriations, and director of a a contracting firm for USAID. Um, Kirill speaks uh, perhaps uh, in a way that is best captured by the old adage, uh, to whom much is given, much is is expected. He feels as though he has been blessed and, and has... Uh, received so many uh, benefits in life, which uh, makes it, which which in t- imparts upon him a great responsibility uh, to give back to his community. He's worn many different hats. He has practiced patience and dedication uh, as the owner of a uh, of a small business uh, instructing students, uh, and then he has uh, continued to go around the world and seek to. Uh, improve the distribution of, uh, of of American munificence, also a responsibility that America has to share its bounty with the world. And he takes these perspectives and goes to the state legislature to represent his district um, as a means of giving back. He recognizes that much has been given to him, that he has not gotten to where he is today on his own, but rather through the effort of both himself, but also so many others who helped pull him up and he is seeking to perpetuate that cycle so that the next generation of those who are currently, as he once was, uh, immigrants from other countries, um, children of of two working parents, people who could use a a helping hand, he seeks to do that to to enable the next generation to grow up and contribute to public service. So, Kirill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And this has been episode 116 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. Remind you to join us at publicinterestpodcast.com 
or on iTunes or your podcast app on Apple products. Should you like to talk to Kirill, you can leave him a voicemail. The number is on the Contact Us page of the website. We forward that to him. Again, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.